0: Uh well let's go ahead and get started. Um we might have another person or two join us, but good to go ahead and get going. Um I always uh start these classes in prayer. Sometimes I do it out loud and sometimes I don't. Um but I'll go ahead and do it out loud this morning. Uh dear God, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you uh for this these texts. Uh thank you for the Jesus to whom they point. Help us to understand what's written here to uh, be able to engage it seriously with understanding. Um, and uh, as always, Lord, I, I pray against my own weaknesses. Um, I am unfit for this task and ask that you would please bless these friends um, according to your goodness and grace um, again this morning. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, last week, we did the um, look at Mark 7 and 8 and Matthew 14 to 16 and develop that theme of bread Uh, if you weren't here last week and haven't had a chance to catch that audio i'd really encourage you to do it i I think it's an important and honestly kind of interesting sequence where this imagery of bread is sustained and then we moved from the imagery of bread particularly in mark um over to john's gospel where uh we had the discourse of jesus after the feeding of the five thousand in which he presents himself as the bread of life uh, so that sequence, I thought, was pretty striking and, and honestly was kind of new um, ground for me personally. Uh, so I do encourage you to try to catch that if you haven't had a chance yet. Um, but it does lead us to this critical juncture in the narratives, in all four of them, honestly, uh, where the question of who is Jesus really comes right to the fore. And we have uh, then Peter's response to Jesus's question I sent you, I heard, uh, two handouts this morning. One of them is entitled, I think, uh, Peter's Profession or something to that effect. It, uh, includes Matthew 16, Mark 8, and Luke 9, uh, portions of each. And let me, let me start by just reading down that middle column of Mark's account of this. Uh, Mark 8, verses 27 to 38, if you don't for any reason have that handout, it's Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and following. And we read this, Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? They answered, saying, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets and he continued by questioning them but who do you say that i am peter answered and said to him you are the christ and jesus warned them to tell no one about him and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again And he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter took him aside and began began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father and with the holy angels. I would say that the gospel narratives in um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, have all been on a kind of an ascending plot line, if you will. This is where I miss my whiteboard in the classroom, Um, but you can imagine an ascending plot line with various kind of peaks along the way. Uh, One of the most recent peaks before this would have been the feeding of the 5,000 and then Jesus' discourse on the, being the bread of life. Um, and then after that, I think this is the next big peak, and it's certainly the culmination of the first 16 chapters of Matthew, the first eight of Mark, and the first nine of Luke. Uh, it is a critical juncture in the narrative. It is a critical juncture in Jesus' own uh, story as he now turns, as it were, toward Jerusalem, toward what he knows will be his death. And it is a critical juncture (coughs) for his disciples and therefore for the readers of these Gospels um, to think about what um, Jesus is saying in that last paragraph or so that we just read. Um, It is worth glancing at the other accounts, I think, in Matthew in chapter 16, you have very similar account, same location, that sort of thing. Um, Down a few verses on that left column in verse 18 you have this additional comment from matthew um, about peter being the rock on which christ will build his church and giving him the keys of the kingdom of heaven whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven um, a a curious passage that has been interpreted in quite a variety of ways Um, I won't try to linger over it today. If you want, we can try to come back and talk about it. Um, But Matthew does include that, and it is unique to Matthew. Then, um, as you go on down, you'll see um, the last portion of that account, verse 28. Truly, I say to you, there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom that's not included in mark's account it is included over in luke's account so if you go over to the luke's passages you'll see that same kind of a thing in that last line uh, some of those standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of god a couple of other distinctives um, one is here in luke in verse 23 if anyone wishes to come after me he must deny himself and take up his cross and Luke includes the word daily and follow me, which is which gives it a different kind of flavor, doesn't it? The idea that there is a daily uh, dying to self. I, I see sort of four four real steps here. The first is the question that Jesus asks Who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And then Peter's answer, you are the Christ of God or the Christ, the son of, uh, God. Um, as always, it is important to remember none of this makes much sense at all if it's removed from its, its Jewish context and it's being framed by Hebrew literature, religion and history. Um, the very idea of a Christ obviously grows out of that understanding, that story, um, that literature, and so there is. It would seem central to this narrative that claim that Jesus is the Christ, that anticipated messianic figure um, that has sort of developed um, over the centuries and is rooted in the Hebrew Hebrew Bible. Um, you then have uh, the prediction after the question in verse 31 of Mark, where Jesus says to them, and this, is, this is why it, it is this kind of critical juncture of the declaration of who Jesus is, that he is in fact the Christ, and then Jesus immediately saying, and I am headed uh, to my death. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the religious leadership, and be killed. And after three days rise again, the part Peter hears then is the part about being killed. Peter thinking he is doing a good thing, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him for saying this kind of thing. uh Let's not get all negative um here. It's interesting in Mark's account that it includes the the, the little detail this is the kind of little detail that i I think is interesting in Mark turning around. Jesus sees his disciples and rebukes Peter. His rebuke of Peter is an act of love for his disciples, is the way Mark gives it to us. And so he rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's interests, on the things of God, but the things of man. Now, that's an interesting little... um idiom there get behind me satan um i'm not sure how to read it and i and i wish i knew better how to read it mm-hmm. the idea of getting behind is actually following me fo- follow me get behind me in the sense of following me back in the beginning in mark 4 for instance you'll have a portion of this phrase where he says to these same disciples uh, come and follow me mm-hmm. there it is a come follow here it is a sort of a go follow and then in the next verse if anyone wants to come after me uh it's the same main word here of coming after um that that uh that the text uses <coughs> i'm i'm increasingly inclined to see his rebuke of peter not as a not the way i used to read it which was more of a go away from me <laughs> i don 't think it's a go away i think it's a it's a get behind me um as in peter I, I, we're at a criti- critical juncture here man i I need you behind me, not fighting me. I need you with me and 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 behind me in that sense of following and supporting me, not fighting me or arguing with me on what I know has to has to happen at this juncture so so i do read that a little differently than the way i used to um right or wrong i am seeing it more in those terms and and i and i do see this as 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 linked together with some other um elements in the gospels where uh it it becomes apparent that, that that jesus and his disciples are a band of brothers And and that really means something, and it means something to Jesus. He is, after all, incarnate. He is human, and he is full of all the kind of human needs and emotions that any of us are. Um, He needs these guys with him and for him. He he wants them to be for him. He knows one of them is going to be the guy who will actually hand him over. And he knows they're all fallible and weak, as we will see in the next passage. but, but they are also guys that he loves and has traveled with and drawn close to. And there's a kind of a poignancy, I think, in the, in the relationship. And there are moments like this where I think it comes out, Peter, I, I need you with me, man, not fighting me at this point. And then he goes on, um, to, uh, to the calling so that what is a decisive moment for Jesus, is a decisive moment for those who would follow as well if anyone wants to come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow lose your life if you want to save it what would it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul it's a very sober invitation isn't it a very sober call i um i I think sometimes when we think of what is referred to these days as the gospel that um in in worst case scenarios it kind of gets reduced to a sort of a salvation box um neatly wrapped up and offered to people and you kind of can say yeah i'll take one of those that sounds like a good idea um jesus's own calling has a far more somber, serious tone to it, doesn't it? Um, you want to follow? Die. You know, it's, it's that that kind of message. And as he says in some of his parables and and sort of illustrations in his teaching, is dying is a good thing. Dying is how life begins. The seed doesn't become fruitful as a plant until it falls on the ground and dies. Um, this is incidentally, if I may, a little aside. I think that it's part of Flannery O'Connor's genius, um, in her stories is she understands this element. She understands the, the, the role of death in grace and she understands the kind of violent nature of grace, if you will. If you're not familiar with her stories, there's a lot of violence in them. There is often death in them. And that death is usually a picture of God's grace at work, um, creating something new uh and and it's very powerful stuff um i encourage you to spend some time with her short stories but but i think i think she captures this kind of a thing this is where that if you will a christian intellectual tradition it's but that's too weak a word it's a thoughtful engaged theologically rich um reflection and flannery captures this idea that that there is there is life in dying This this then, I think, is is a a crucial moment, and it does take us just one more time over to John's Gospel, and then we'll pause and and talk for a minute. Um, In John's Gospel, we were in Chapter 6 last week, where we had this discourse by Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000, and he talks about being the bread of life. He also goes into this kind of grotesque imagery of, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood to have life. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. And then he asks that question uh, in verse 62. um, You're trying to figure out what I'm saying. Well, what would these things mean once I am no longer with you bodily? Run them through that filter, he's saying. And understand that what he's talking about is a deeply spiritual understanding of what it would mean to feed on Christ. Spirit to spirit, feed on Christ in our hearts, draw our life and nourishment from him, recognize a kind of a mysterious spiritual reality that is that is mysterious to us and puzzling. But that also finds expression in very tangible, specific ways of reading Christ's words and feeding on those words, um, communing with him in that way. The words that I give you are spirit, and they are life, he says. Now, notwithstanding his hint there for how to understand his imagery, in verse 60 of John 6, we're told that many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is hard stuff. I don't get it, and i it's freaking me out. That's my paraphrase of verse 60. He says to his disciples does this cause you to stumble he knows some will not believe he knows the one who in fact is going to betray him but then in verse 66 we have this little episode as a result of this many of his disciples did draw away from him and we're not walking with him anymore jesus said therefore to the twelve you do not want to go away also do you and simon peter answers him lord to whom shall we go you have words of eternal life we we do believe and and we've come to know you you are the holy one of god um you know it's an interesting thing when you when you look at the overall story of jesus's adult ministry as short as it may have been it is largely one of uh, i mean it can at least be told this way it can largely be told as one of sort of failure um of his audience diminishing and diminishing and people leaving um right down to the night of his death when his own closest followers leave as well um so here we've got a picture of that many of people who who were following him not just strangers out there but people who we're kind of taking him seriously at this point. Go, yeah, not so much. And Jesus turns to the twelve then, and I think it's just another one of those poignant moments. How about you guys? Are you going to leave? And and I encourage us to hear those as genuine. That is not just Jesus posturing. And it's Simon Peter who who again emerges with his answer. Where, where would we go? You have words of eternal life. There's a lot we don't understand. We're trying to figure out, but we I, I think we've got that much. Probably this would be before the passages we just read in Mark, Matthew, and Luke, um, just given all things considered. And I think probably I was about to be done with that. I'm not sure, honestly, just exactly where I was in mid-sentence, but um
1: uh, it happens chronologically before the other passages
0: yeah okay yeah, but in there at a very similar <coughs> a very similar juncture and sort of in john's telling of the gospel again at this kind of midpoint in the narrative um and a significant turning um in this in the story um let me let me pause there and, and say if you have any questions about anything we've talked about so far please feel free to raise them but But the other question I have for you and for us together is we are at a significant point in in the narrative. We are at a sort of a midpoint and it's something of a climax. So we've, we've gotten somewhere and, and I'd be interested in knowing what you think Jesus's basic message is at this point. What, what is it he would want us to understand At this juncture. I, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and take maybe a, the easiest answer is just just what we just read. He would want us to understand that he is the Christ, that, that that is that is how he understands himself and how the four gospels present him. So there is that. And and again, then a lot of things follow from that in terms of the understanding of the role of a Messiah, prophet, priest and king the fulfillment of old testament sacrificial systems of tabernacle and tabernacle and temple worship so so there's a lot going on in that claim but just that much then certainly would be a central part of the message but um what, what else would you see jesus as wanting us to understand when we talked last week some of it was about are the disciples understanding or not um what does he want us to understand any thoughts? What is the message? I mean, I think all the way back to chapter one. Yeah, Brian, were you gonna say something?
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm getting this that um, it's almost like that. There's a, there's a better way to live. And again, I'm struck that like there's this change where, uh, like where we're hitting it now, where he's becoming the message, whereas it seemed before, it's like, uh. How do I say? Uh, he was obviously still central to it. Um, uh, but it, it's almost like maybe it's people are seeing him as a means rather than an ends. And he is now, uh, it seems at this transition inflection point, he's becoming the ends in and of itself. But before that, at least what people were picking up from the message was like, this guy is going to make life better. Um, yeah. to some extent, I mean, there were, there was some hard stuff in there too. But overall, um, there, there's there's a, a better way in our religious systems. There's a better way in our interactions with each other. There's things that are broken with the world that he can fix. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe that's not the same question. I get, I maybe mean, that's that that's the message I think people are hearing. Um, I don't know if that was
0: his focus or that's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And and in some cases. <laughs> Better for me, and and it's still got a sort of a me orientation. But it, but also I think you're right. Just plain better that there are better ways to live, and he is calling us to the better ways. Interesting. Yeah, and once again, I'm not sitting here with the right answer in my mind, hoping you come up with it. I am. This is this is an interesting question to me, partly because we all almost no matter where we're coming from we've got some idea of what these books say and and it's always worth checking yourself uh, against what the books actually say um because we do tend to have these views that develop for us and i i certainly do and certainly have and i've been in these books over and over and been a part of the church i are the messages we typically hear associated with these gospels the messages that we're reading so then the question is what 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 are we reading in these gospels at this point?
2: Um, I have kind of it's not really an answer to the question <laughs> unfortunately but it's it's just a, another question um, which is the line um, take up one's cross and follow me mm-hmm. um, this like precedes the the crucifixion account Right, so um, I I kind of once heard someone say like, all of the disciples must have been like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, take up take up your cross, right? Like, this hasn't happened yet. So, I don't know if, <coughs> if you could speak to that a little bit. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right, and that's why some scholars just say he didn't say this. This was read back into the narrative. It's that that's. There's certainly plenty of scholars who, who will want to read back into the narrative things, you know, subsequent to Christ's death. Um, but I, I don't know that there's good reason to do that. Um, I, but I think it does leave exactly the issue you just said, which is that would just be a, a strange thing to hear and to try to make sense of. So I, I, you know sometimes the disciples are faulted for being surprised by the resurrection because Jesus told them it was going to happen to me, the combination of being told to take up your cross, in other words, to sort of bear this grotesque form of roman execution, and I will be raised again in three days i um who would have who would have understood what he was saying at that point i i I think it would have been very mysterious and hard to understand. And the image of what it would mean for us then to take up our cross is 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 going to be, as you say, just hard to understand. And, and there's no question at many points, Jesus leaves you with some puzzlement and does so quite deliberately. Those um, parables almost always, without exception, have that element in them. Other thoughts on his message at this point? I mean, even sort of just thinking in terms of what has stayed with you from chapter 1, verse 1 through to this point. What kind of response does he want from from people, from us?
2: I think to that question, uh, I sort of would echo a lot of what Brian said about uh, I've kind of been struck by kind of his relationship, Jesus' relationship to the crowds. And how he sort of, uh, in earlier in John says like he would not, at least in the NIV, like entrust himself to people. Uh, he sort of has his mission and sort of the crowds have differing responses. Um, some, as we kind of read, will kind of commit and then sort of fade away. Others, I know at other points, you know, it seems like they're following him, um, because they want to make him a king by force. And so he withdraws or. Thereafter after kind of they, you know, I I can't remember the passage or where exactly it is, but, you know, because later he says, well, you had your fill, you, you came for sort of food and things and I, you're not hungry anymore, but you know, um, the breath life and stuff like, I I think that's the same section, but just sort of seeing the crowd sort of follow in their sort of different, differing responses and how, or you see that theme of Jesus, um, Sort of reaching out to the crowds, but also sort of withdrawing at times and, um, and kind of the interesting, I guess, dance, figurative dance between that and sort of, um, or sort of saying, you know, go and tell or don't go and tell and, and things like that. I don't know. I've just been
0: struck by that. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And and it's interesting in both ways, isn't it? That there is this real extension of himself to multitudes of people. And at the same time, he doesn't make anything easy. He doesn't make it easy to follow him. Or even to understand what he's saying. Often, I I am drawn back to the very beginning of the gospel records. um, uh, when, When Jesus first steps out cite the mark version of it for instance in mark one after john's been taken into custody jesus comes preaching the gospel of god the good news saying the time is fulfilled the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe in the gospel there's a message of the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe the good news which at that point i think is the good news of of the kingdom at hand and it would seem then in these comments that we just saw for instance about there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom that that kingdom is about to be enacted in a very specific way in the death and then in the resurrection of christ but that theme of the kingdom is one we haven't spent a lot of time lingering on but the the parables are probably where we thought most about it as, as to parables that um suggest the nature of the kingdom But that that's certainly one of the themes and he is inviting us into this kingdom It would seem um <clears throat> the comments earlier about a, a way to live does bring to mind last week's class, uh, the imagery of bread and what the disciples were and were not understanding. And Jesus's um, attempt, it would seem, to draw the disciples to look more inward and examine themselves, to get past the sort of ephemeral, shallow surface judgments that we all tend to make about ourselves and about other people and to look inward and see what sort of persons we are um and and work at that level um is is a part of it too and i think that goes hand in hand with this idea then of one repentance because of what we often find within ourselves but also then of denying ourselves and 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 dying and taking up and following him there is a call to follow isn't there and and there is there is this element of belief it's interesting to me to bring the gospels together and John's gospel what we read last week was when the people ask him what is the work that uh god asks of us and Jesus's answer is to believe in the one whom he has sent and in believing have eternal life so there there's an emphasis on believing here in these other gospels, I think there is an emphasis on following, but I, but, and and some people want to make a big thing out of that being contradictory or something, but it's not contradictory at all, I don't think. And, and that the kind of following being called to here is the kind of following that is rooted in trust, trust Christ enough to follow him, to die to self and follow him. Um, And then the kind of belief that John is going to call us to is not just a kind of a lighthearted i'll take one of those salvation items please it's it is a kind of belief that is a trust and finds expression in specific ways in the pauline literature the phrase that always strikes me in this is what paul refers to as the obedience of faith he he starts the book of romans and ends the book of romans with that phrase Um, and so all this you know, going on and on about whether it's by faith or works and whether there's a conflict in the New Testament and all. I, I don't think there is a conflict. But the notion of trust, the notion of belief is a notion of trust. It runs deep. It finds expression in various ways, including what Paul will call the obedience of faith. It finds expression here in what Jesus is saying, you know, come and follow. And, and and so then you also have the idea of Jesus, and I think Brian you were kind of touching on this, I think at um on Jesus' means and end is um Jesus is more than an example, clearly, but Jesus is an example Jesus means for us to live the way he did, and that becomes a really fascinating exploration and self uh, examination that <laughs> usually doesn't uh how do i want to put it in which i find myself often troubled um you call me lord lord and do not do what i say there there is that calling to be like jesus uh as i say continue reflecting on these things um they are always worth further further reflection and And then, with that let me let me move on to the next episode, and we'll just spend a little time with it as we conclude. I will pick up next semester with it as well and as far as next semester goes, um there will be a second half of this class, and we will offer it somehow. Uh, we are trying to figure out what we can do and what we should do in terms of offering classes and what we can do at the center, what still needs to be done this way um I will say you all have been patient with me on this. I am an old dog and I do not learn new tricks well and have struggled with this. Um, so I've never been real satisfied with my zoom teaching skills. Uh, so thank you for your patience with me and with our various glitches along the way. Uh, we will, we will be announcing here in coming weeks what we'll be doing. Um, and I know we will have a second half of this class somehow. Um, so. Whether it will be at this time and this way, I don't know yet, uh, but do watch for it. And one thing we will be sure to do is always have the audio files so that you can at least follow it that way. If for any reason you can't be in on the class itself. Um, but the next episode is the one that's on your other handout. <coughs> and it is on the one side of that handout, the Transfiguration they go up the mountain. There is this extraordinary transfiguration of Jesus on the top of the mountain. And then the next story is them coming back down the mountain. And that story we will defer until January. But the transfiguration, I just want to look at for a few minutes. Um, it follows immediately after Jesus declares that he is headed to Jerusalem to die. In um, Matthew's account, we read that uh, in chapter 17, verse 1, six days later, which I would take to be after Peter's profession, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and James's brother, John, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him when the disciples heard they fell face down to the ground and were terrified and jesus came to them and touched them and said get up and do not be afraid and lifting up their eyes they saw no one except jesus himself alone Uh, I've suggested, I think, in this class a couple of times that one way to read these texts is occasionally drop something out and see what difference it makes and then put it back in and see what difference it makes. This is one of those episodes that It it does kind of just leave you speechless. This is just about as bizarre as it gets. um, and, And here it is. Jesus and these, these three disciples go up on the mountain. While they're up there, there is this moment in which I would say it this way. Jesus is revealed to these three guys for who he actually is. In, in the fullness of his glory as the Son of God and Prince of Heaven. It is the glory that, as Paul will refer to it, is what Jesus gave up, what the Son of God came up to become Jesus on earth. But for a moment, it's like the veil is pulled back and they see him for who he actually is. It's a little bit like the shepherds at the birth of Christ, where the heavens open and the shepherds see heaven and the angels being angels. Here, these three guys see Jesus being the son of God in this far more transparent way and the reality of who he is literally physically shines through then you add as if that's not enough they see moses and elijah talking to jesus peter then awkwardly tries to memorialize the moment and while he's doing it a cloud rolls in always sort of representing the presence of god as in the exodus and a voice this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased listen to him very similar kind of comment as to back at the baptism except for the addition of listen to him they're they're in the dirt terrified and then thankfully things go back to quote unquote normal and they come back down the mountain um a few thoughts there there are four elements here that that strike me too i guess a little bit like that last passage um we have the uh initially just this revelation of jesus sort of for who he is the removal of the veil um for them to be able to see the glory this would be the glory to which Jesus refers in John 17 when he prays. Um, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This would be the glory to which Hebrews 12, 1 refers when it says that Jesus went through the suffering he went through for the glory that was set before him. It was his rightful glory, and it was what he had given up to come into this planet and among us as one of us. The second element there that strikes me is this appearance of Moses and Elijah. Um, they, they, they appear here as both um, forerunners to Jesus and the fruit of his work. It's interesting that they are in both roles, isn't it? Moses is the one through whom the law is given. Elijah is the great prophet who fights the enemies of God. Both of them are our forerunners or predecessors to Jesus. What Moses begins, Elijah continues and Jesus fulfills. Jesus fulfilled the law that Moses gave. So much of what Moses was involved in would have pointed to the Christ and thus to Jesus. The living water from the rock in the wilderness, the rock itself, the manna, the serpent that was raised up in the cross in the wilderness, all the tabernacle worship, the sacrificial system and the priesthood, all is pointing to Jesus and now fulfilled in him. Elijah similarly is the, is the prophet that fought these great battles against the enemies of the people, against the enemies of, of God. Um, and, and both Moses and Elijah had spent time in that wilderness and at Horeb. This is one reason why I think in Jesus' own 40 days in the wilderness, he was where Elijah and Moses had been. Both of them there are there then as predecessors to encourage Jesus. Um and, and at the same time, they are there as the fruit of his labor. As Jesus puts it in another occasion, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. He is the God of Moses and Elijah, meaning they are living beings. They are, as Luke tells us, appearing in their glorious splendor. Now, we didn't look at the other accounts, but in Luke's account, he says that they, uh, Moses and Elijah appeared in their glorious splendor. In other words, their heavenly glory that is theirs because of what Jesus is about to finish doing. And that's why God is the God of the living and not of the dead. It is worth noting that Moses back in deuteronomy is um not allowed to go into the promised land he stands on the east side of the river of jordan the jordan river and looks across at the promised land on this occasion now on this mountain wherever it is somewhere in israel he stands with jesus in the promised land and yet obviously in that greater promised land as well Uh, the heavenly land if you will it's also worth noting that luke gives us another detail (coughs) which um, appears in verse 31 where it says that moses and elijah appearing in their heavenly glory were speaking to jesus of his departure which he was about to accomplish at jerusalem The Greek word there for departure is exodus. It's the same word as given to the second book of the Old Testament. And it is the word for the exodus of the people um, there into the promised land. It's interesting that that's the word being used here for the conversation that these three people are having. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are talking about Jesus's own exodus. and, And that idea that Jesus is on an exodus of his own that goes through the wilderness kind of experience of being on this earth. And dealing with everything he's dealing with, confronting enemies, dealing with them, and finally he will cross the Jordan into the Promised Land himself. But that that was actually sort of the topic uh, of ex- of Moses and Elijah and Jesus, and that I think in that sense they really are there to encourage Jesus um, at this critical critical moment in his in his story. The third element that strikes me is this voice, the cloud and the voice. Again, an encouragement to Jesus, but it's interesting. The voice speaks um, sort of about Jesus to the disciples, in effect, who are witnesses to this. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. In the second epistle of Peter... Chapter 1, verses 16 to 18 or so, Peter references this episode and talks about the voice from heaven. And part of what Peter is arguing in the beginning of that epistle is that he's trying to reassure his readers, we didn't just make all this stuff up. We we witnessed a bunch of stuff. And, and, and in talking about that, he specifically references this moment. It's not initially clear as to whether he's talking about the voice of the baptism or the voice on the mountain, but then he says... On the mountain and identifies it as the, as being a, a, this, this occasion, I think. Um, it is striking that the voice not only affirms Jesus as the son who is loved, um, but also as this line, listen to him. I, I do, I do, for some reason, I just find that great. I, that, that, uh, there is this, um, kind of simple voice to the disciples listen okay just listen to him you do well to listen all right it's a little bit like it's a little bit like mary telling the people in cana at the wedding look i don't know what he's going to do um but listen to him do whatever he tells you do it um and then finally one other element And i'll just finish real quickly with this is is the, it's the one that matthew includes the others kind of allude to it but matthew gives us this little detail in verse seven these guys are rightly terrified any glimpse of who God actually is is absolutely terrifying. Um we we would do well to remember that. And then in verse seven, Matthew says, and then Jesus came over to them, tapped them on the shoulder, and said, It's okay, guys. You can get up now. Don't don't be afraid. And and they look up and it's Jesus again, as they had known him for years. And they kind of breathe a sigh of relief and they come back down the mountain with him. A few weeks ago, I I gave you this verse from Paul's second epistle to Corinth chapter four, verse six, for God who said that light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I've talked some about this idea that in the face of Christ, Those who look into that face, who experience him in the flesh this way are literally gaining a knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This transfiguration, of course, is a unique episode in that regard. On the mountain, they see the glory of God in the face of Christ in this distinctive manner, highly unusual manner, and and yet deeply um, real. It, It sort of is opening up fuller dimensions of reality to which we are typically blind but i would suggest that was as great as that glory was that when these guys with their faces in the dirt feel that tap of jesus on the shoulder and he says it's okay guys it's okay you can get up don't be afraid and they look up into jesus's face at that point and they see the humbling of god That humbling of God that put him in the major, that humbling of God that incarnated the son of God, that humbling of God that now touches them on the shoulder and says, it's okay, guys. And they look up into that face. They see every bit as much the glory of God in the face of Christ, because it is revealing the character of God and his love for them and his determination to come back down the mountain into this brokenness and do what he came to do. And finish the work he came to finish. Um, had to do that kind of quickly, but, uh, we'll, we'll really sort of pick up with that in January. Um, talk about this episode and then watch Jesus come back down the mountain and see the juxtaposition of the heavenly father on the mountaintop, the earthly father, um, in the, in the valley and, and all the other sort of couplings, um, that, that are created there when Jesus comes off the mountain and back into our troubled and broken lives. Got to stop. If anybody wants to stick around and chat for a while, as always, glad to do it. I'm also glad to, you know, get together, coffee or whatever um, you'd like and, and chat. That's always welcome and glad to have it in my life and uh glad to have the conversation. So um thank you again for this semester, uh for your patience, for your participation, and I uh, look forward to one way or another, hopefully. Uh, seeing you all again next semester as well, but thanks.